Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Roy Meals will join us to discuss muscle. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show well muscles power everything in our body heartbeats jogging jumping joining us today to discuss this issue is dr roy meals dr meals is a clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at ucla he's the author of bones inside and out which was a barnes and noble best science book of 2020 and he's the author of several medical books practice research and taught hand surgery for over 40 years he has penned the new book muscle the Gripping Story of Strength and Movement. Dr. Meals, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book you put together here, Muscle, The Gripping Story of Strength and Movement. One of these areas of the body where many of us might take for granted. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Well, I've been a fan of natural history forever, and I remember being awed as a five-year-old by planting some radish seeds, and three or four days later, seeing these little solar radiators pop out of the skin, and I've bought into biology ever since then. I majored it in college, and then when I went to medical school, I became interested in the musculoskeletal system and did a residency in orthopedic surgery, and then followed that with a a fellowship in, in hand surgery. I've always enjoyed teaching and writing and trying to help students uh, learn what they need to know next, and that I've always thought that learning should be fun. And so I wrote the Bones book a couple years ago and really covered A to Z, not only living bone and how we deal with it and damage that can be done to it and treatments that can be performed for it, but then in Bones' second life, how it is a historical marker in terms of paleontology and anthropology and popular culture. So I had fun doing that. And when I was done with that, I said, well, okay, well, muscle is bone's closest friend. And I think that there's plenty of material to write about muscle. And then, too, I think we all have a much better firsthand idea about muscle than we do bone. You know, we can knock on our forehead or we can bump our shin and we know there's bone in there that we can see it on x-ray and that we get older, we have to be concerned about our bone density, but that we really have no firsthand impression of it. And compared to muscle is that you can look across the room and get a general idea about somebody's general fitness by just seeing the muscle as it is visible through the skin. And then the other thing is that, yeah, we're advised to exercise to maintain our, our bone density, but that we can't really tell whether the exercise is doing us any good unless we get a special bone density test. But conversely, we can easily see the changes that affect in our muscles by an exercise program or the lack of an exercise program. And then also we have firsthand information with our bones when we do too much and they're sore the next day. That's what led me into it. And it was a fun adventure. And I think that people have been enjoying reading it and learning about this integral part of one of life's essential functions. 
we take for granted that the muscle is there, but there's all sorts of different kinds of muscles that you talk about in the book. Well, the simplest kind is a smooth muscle, and that's the fact that we have the least appreciation of, but that's the muscle that's not under voluntary control, but that it allows for peristalsis in the intestinal tract. It uh, allows for contraction of the uterus during delivery, controls the diameter and resistance in the arterial system in terms of either circulating more blood to the periphery to the hands and feet if innards are a little too warm and it will cut down the circulation to the extremities when the environment is cold and that the body wants to maintain the heat of the brain and the kidneys and so forth. So, so that's the smooth muscle. The other muscle that's not under voluntary control and is just awesomely durable, and that's the cardiac muscle, which you think about it, that do the math that since the embryo was about three weeks old, it's been beating at somewhere between 60 and maybe 160 beats a minute. And if cared for properly, this can go on for well over 100 years. And I defy any man-made machine to be anywhere near that degree of durability. Unappreciated muscles in our body that keep everything moving, so to speak. Right. And among the smooth muscles are also tiny little wisps of muscle that attach to every hair follicles. And that accounts for goosebumps when somebody gets cold or, or scared. And that on a daily basis, we just don't think about those muscles. And it's a good thing that we don't either, because you can imagine how complicated life would be if I had to tell my diaphragm, breathe in, breathe out, contract, relax. And at the same time, telling my heart to contract. And then if I was called to voluntarily command each hair follicle to contract its bit of muscle and send my hairs on end and give me goosebumps. And so it's a well-organized system such that these autonomic functions of, of smooth muscle and cardiac muscle occur without our conscious involvement. Muscles have differences in terms of their structure, their ability to do work. If one could uh, innervate smooth muscle with a voluntary nerve, would you be able to control it? A very interesting question. The smooth muscle is the least sophisticated type of muscle, and that when it's examined under the microscope, it's a little bit disorganized. When you compare that to cardiac muscle and voluntary muscle, it is the cardiac muscle and the voluntary muscle, all of the fibers are well aligned to cause contraction in one direction, whereas the smooth muscles, the fibers are arranged somewhat randomly and so that they can contract in various positions. And so if you looked at under the microscope, is that it would be clear that muscle is organized to a, a different degree. Under the microscope, cardiac muscle and skeletal muscle looks pretty much the same. Could you a nerve to a voluntary muscle and, and put it on smooth muscle? I, I don't think so. I'll have to think about that. But that, that's one of, been one of the fun things about doing the book is that all the things that I've learned and asked myself and challenged myself. And uh, there are a lot of mysteries about muscle. And as far as I know, that remains a mystery at this point. Well, does it reflect an evolutionary history? Does the smooth muscle being more disorganized, did that come first? Yeah, the muscle goes back at least 500 million years and perhaps started in jellyfish or uh, sponges and fairly life forms and then gradually developed into bigger muscles that were attached to bony skeletons allow for the wide diversity of animal life that we know now. Do each of these types of muscles have equal capacity for being strengthened or are the differences? Well, it might be able to, in certain circumstances, if you want, you can perhaps train some of your smooth muscles not to contract. And the extreme example that I give in the book is, is sword swallowers because they 
lean their head way back so that they have a straight shot down through their throat and esophagus into their stomach. And with that straight shot, then they can drop a, a rigid steel blade into their stomach, but that they have to go past the, the sphincters that, that control the opening of the esophagus into the stomach. And that's not under voluntary control under normal circumstances, but that they have to learn to control that so that they can slip the blade into their stomach. And when somebody regurgitates, is that there must be some voluntary control of that sphincter to allow the contents of the stomach to be regurgitated. In general, we don't have voluntary control of our smooth muscles. And then people who are deeply into yoga by practicing relaxation techniques can, in fact, slow their heart rate. And then momentarily, any of us can slow our heart rate if you feel your pulse and then take a big, deep breath in and, and hold it. You can feel your pulse drop just a beat or two for three or four beats as heart realizes that there's not as much blood coming back into the chest from the other parts of the body. And so it can take a, a temporary slowdown. But other than that, we have good control over our voluntary muscles, but the smooth muscle and the cardiac muscle are pretty much beyond our control. Do you discuss a little bit about muscles in human culture? Well, even before the Greeks and Romans, if you go to the Antiquities uh, Museum and, and you look at the Assyrians or the Babylonians, is that uh, their deities and rulers were often bare-chested and exhibited bust figure. This carried on to, into the Greek and Roman cultures. And think about the statues of Hercules or Zeus or any of the various gods in, in Greek and Roman culture. And then this moved on up through the Renaissance and Michelangelo and David, or more recent times, Rodin's uh, muscular figures. I think that Western cultures have always attributed power and strength and health with uh, uh, solid physique. Well, oftentimes we don't become aware of musculature or any parts of our body until disease hit. Well, sadly, that's true with all parts of our body. When I see a patient with a hand condition, they say, well, I never appreciated how valuable my hand was until I couldn't use it. But if somebody has a hearing disorder or a vision disorder, it all of a sudden normally take for granted about the way all of our body works, it comes to the conscious uh, forefront. So in that regard, I try to take a moment each day to appreciate that everything's working or everything's working pretty darn well. And that's a good thing. The most common way that, that muscle talks to people uh, is the delayed onset muscle soreness that'll come on a day or two after unaccustomed physical activity. Somebody uh, rides a bike too far or uh, gardens uh, more intensely and for longer duration than they're used to is that then they may wake up a day or two later with delayed onset muscle stiffness. It's interesting is that as common as this condition is, is that not really much is known about it. Knee-jerk reaction and say, well, it's a buildup of, of lactic acid in the muscle. And lactic acid is one of the byproducts of the metabolism that occurs when the muscle contracts. But that's been proven to be wrong because the lactic acid will resorb from the muscle or, or be converted into other chemicals within just minutes after exertional activity. So we don't really know what the cause of the late onset muscle stiffness is and that because it's self-limiting and it never kills anybody, is that it would be difficult for an investigator to get funded for a, a research project to look into it. And then it would be a little bit hard to find subjects who would want to, an investigator could say, well, okay, you go out and pump iron until you can't stand up, and then we'll biopsy your muscle. 
most of us really aren't that keen in having our muscles poked and probed and biopsied uh, just to figure out how to get rid of delayed onset uh, muscle stiffness. So a lot of these things, muscle cramps, nobody has a really complete idea about what causes cramps, but the same thing because it's self-limiting and not life-threatening. It just doesn't draw the attention from research granting agencies that cardiac disease or cancer might. Is there anything that particularly surprised you about the story of muscle in terms of either physiology, its history, or really? <laughs> well, the biggest eye-opener was when I was talking about, when I was writing about muscle uh, building and, and bodybuilding contests. And as I started writing the book, I decided to employ a, a personal trainer. I've never been a fan of weightlifting. I've always found it boring, but I figured if I was going to be writing about this, that I should actually uh, walk the walk. And so I, for now over two years, I personal trainer twice a week, uh, is a champion bodybuilder himself and has a degree in sports nutrition. So we have really rich exercises, uh, rich exercises. We also have rich uh, conversations. But the, uh, he said, well, as a champion bodybuilder, I said, well, what, you know, tell me about a bodybuilding contest. And he said, well, you should go to one. Uh, so I went on the internet and found one in Burbank, which is maybe 40 minutes away uh, on a Saturday morning. And so went over and uh, I should note right away that I went as a as a spectator, not as a contestant, and paid my entrance fee, but then I paid a little a supplemental fee to give me a backstage pass, which gave me access into the rooms where the bodybuilders were preparing. And so I first went into this fairly sizable room. There must have been 40 or, five, 40 or 50 men in there. It was practically standing room only, but pretty much just uh, wearing uh, briefs. And over in the corner, there was a big area t- uh, screened off where spray tanners. And so in addition to their admissions fee, if they wanted to pay extra, they could get a spray tan uh, that morning. But out in the room that the contestants were smoothing out the spray tan on each other's back. There were a couple guys down doing really slow push-ups to pump up their muscles. You look in their duffel bags and there must be 25 or 30 little containers of uh, different supplements and nutrients that they were taking. And that was impressive. But then I walked next door to the room where the women were, were getting ready. And that was that was absolutely shocking. That, that was like Las Vegas showgirls, you know, on steroids because, you know, scanning little sequined outfits and then these incredibly bulgy muscles. I, I, I was afraid to go in there. I, they could have torn my head off. And, and then so I went out in the audience and watched these people come out and demonstrate their various poses. And then uh, as the day went on, the bodybuilders, when they finished their exhibition, they they put warm-ups on and come out and and sit in the audience. I was sitting next to a woman who was chatting with her, and she said, well, her husband, and she had flown in from Dallas uh, here to Burbank a couple days before, and he was going to exhibit, and uh, then they'd go home the next day. In fact, he won his section of the contest and got a a check for $1,000. But when he came out and sat down next to us is it with his warm-ups on, you know, he didn't look any much different than any normal person on the street. And then I started doing the math. Okay, they flew to Los Angeles. They're staying a couple nights in a hotel, and they're getting $1,000 out of this. Is it say, you know, that doesn't compute. This person is not doing this for the money. He did run a gym, and so I guess he can go home and have brag rights for winning this contest in California. But that the people who do these bodybuilding contests is that they put themselves on extreme diets for a month beforehand to get their body fat from what would be normal of 
20 or 25 percent, they get their body fat down to six or seven percent, which is dangerously low. But for that last month, uh, my trainer told me, he said, for the last month, you eat nothing but white chicken meat and, and rice and a little bit of broccoli. And then a day or two before the contest, you begin to dehydrate yourself and so that your skin is just pasted right on your muscle. So I guess that was the biggest eye opener. <laughs> supposed to go to that contest and see a slice of life that I had, you know, no awareness of whatsoever. And I have great respect for those people, but, but uh, they say that they can't compete more than maybe twice a year because the uh, preparation for it, it is just too onerous. And, and then I'll say that when the trainer first came, he asked me what my goals were. And I said, well, I was writing this book and, you know, would like to be in better shape and so forth. And I said, you know, it'd be fun if a guy, a senior, could develop a six-pack and he just smiled at me and he said said Roy says your six-pack is in there it's just covered up and uh, so I, I don't want to drop my body weight down to seven I don't want to drop my body fat down to seven percent just to uh, demonstrate a six-pack it's comforting those want a six-pack at least we we know we have that's right that's right and we can show it off if we wanted to right so no aspirations then for competing in the senior division of muscle building contest then Absolutely. They had contestants, uh, even a few contestants, even in their 80s. Most of these guys were policemen or, you know, ran a gym or something like that. And they're 20 or 30, maybe 40 years old. But there were a scattering of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And I believe there was even one fellow in his uh, in his 80s. And so I, this is a passion for them. I mean, really a fascinating book. And, and unfortunately, we are running slightly out of time. You know, people picking up the book, what would you like them to learn? What would you like them to take home regarding the story of muscle? It's a fascinating story. I call it the gripping uh, story. And, you know, that's a little bit catchy, but I mean, I think it truly is fascinating. And I certainly learned a lot and I certainly enjoyed recounting it. And as I mentioned earlier, I like to teach in a way that makes the lessons fun. And that one of the early reviews about this indicated that the reviewer said science writing at its best, that there was a, a good amount of humor in it. And that a couple of times the book even made him laugh out loud. And I just smiled and gripped my fingers in the position of success and said, my, you know, good. My, my goal was accomplished to teach him something and to let him have fun at the same time. Well, and we were talking with Dr. Roy Meals, the new book, Muscle, the gripping story of strength and movement. Dr. Meals, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>